Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. G'day! Welcome to Country Life. I'm Duncan Smith. Kia ora. Great to have your company. I'm Sally Round. Today, an old town hall vault's being put to good use in Raglan. Instead of keeping money safe, it's helping food security. And a Northland man's on a mission to produce more locally grown bananas. And Cosmos and Waipara meeting a scientist-turned-hill country farmer who, like many farmers, is bent on improving the way he does things. And, as he describes it, he's a bit addicted to on-farm trials. But first, to a roundup of news from the primary sector. And joining us from Kirikiriroa Hamilton, Susan Murray from the Rural News Team. Susan, your first story isn't good news for a country that relies on just that, the primary sector. It certainly isn't, Sally. Stats New Zealand has just released some new figures and it's actually showing that the value of our annual goods exports fell. They fell $3.3 billion to just under $69 billion in the year ended December and that's a 4.5% drop. The reason, I guess it's no surprise, we've heard this all the time, soft demand in that key market of China. Jason Atterwell is General Manager of Economic and Environment Insights. Meat exports were down a billion dollars compared to the previous year, dropped down a billion dollars to 8.8 billion. Dairy products were down a billion as well to 19.4 billion. And log exports were down about half a billion to 4.7 billion. So there's been, there's absolutely been a price uh, impact on the falls there. So um, dairy products, the, the prices have been falling. So we actually exported more but got less for it and very similar with meat as well. And sticking briefly, Sally, with the export news, ongoing tensions with the Houthi rebels in Yemen. They're attacking commercial shipping in the Red Sea. That's having a big flow-on effect to anyone using that waterway. And for New Zealand, it's making it more expensive to get our onions into Europe. The harvest here, it's in full swing. The yields are looking really good, but the ships are having to avoid the Suez Canal, so they're going around Africa or through the Panama Canal. And that is adding... $2 a bag for every bag of onions that lands in Europe. So a little bit costly there. And Onions New Zealand is hoping to export 70,000 tonnes of onions there this year. Mm, And that extra cost will certainly add up for our exporters. Now, what's happening with illegal plantings of New Zealand bred apples in China? This is really interesting, Sally, because we've heard plenty, haven't we, over the past nine or so years about the thousands of hectares of unauthorised plantings of gold kiwi fruit there. And that's had Zespri scrambling to halt the spread and to protect its intellectual property. But yes, this time it's apples and the New Zealand company ends a fruit. It's won a legal action against illegal plantings of its envy apple variety there. Now, the fruit is actually grown legitimately in China with Enza's fruits partner, Joy Wing Mao. 
but these others have been growing it without permission. In the victory in the Gansu Province Court awarded Enza Fruit its full claim for significant damages. In Enza Fruit's Morgan Rogers says that this successful plant varieties judgment under China's very newly issued seed law really reinforces the importance of taking this strong action. Great success there. What um, now? Let's let's talk about cows, the dairy. Um, you've had further confirmation that New Zealand is well past peak cow. What's that mean? Well, well past peak cow when we had the most cows ever, and that was actually a decade ago when it was at its peak. And they've been dropping for the past actually eleven years. We now only have four point six seven million dairy cows rather than over six million. And AgriHQ senior analyst Mel Crowe says that it's land use changes that are behind the fall. There's now forty two thousand fewer effective hectares used for dairy farming compared to a year earlier. Virtually all regions recorded lower cow numbers, but the largest change was in the North Island, and the dairy herd was back 4% there. What we've seen in some regions, it's been a switch to dry stock farming, so exiting dairying for that. But some regions are also reporting a, a switch to forestry or avocado farming, particularly up through Northland. So quite a significant change within one year. A quick word still with dairy and the Māori dairy company Miraka, it's based just north of Topol. It's celebrating founding members who are stepping down as required constitutionally after 12 years of service. They've done just a sterling job, Kingy Smiler, Max Parkin and Mikey Len. They're all instrumental in forming Miraka in 2010. Here's Carl Graydon, Miraka's CEO. All three of the members that are exiting have had just a fundamental impact and influence on the business. Miraka would not exist without the tenacity and courage and vision of Kingy Smiler and uh, principally Max Parkin was the one that drove our decision to become instead of a cheese factory, actually a, a powder factory. So right from inception, the, all three of them, including Madame Lien from Vinamilk in Vietnam, have just, I guess, led us with, with vision more than anything else. Miraka exports $300 million worth of dairy product and incidentally, Sally, it's apparently the only processor in the world to be powered by renewable geothermal energy. Mm, Very interesting that, isn't it? Um, Now look, let's turn to the wine harvest. That's not too far away. How are things looking there? I guess, yeah, it's still early days a little bit, but the indications for a quality wine vintage this year are looking okay. Summer's provided lots of heat, not too much rain in those key growing areas where we've got Hawke's Bay, Wairarapa, Marlborough, Central Otago. But the chief executive of the New Zealand wine growers, Philip Gregan, says that the volumes will be lower than in the past two harvests. We've had two good-sized vintages, so I don't see that as an issue, uh, get bigger vintages, get smaller vintages, and uh, this year we're, we're going to be on the smaller side. The, f- the first concern always for grape growers and winemakers is quality. Quality's looking good at the stage. Obviously, there's still a way to go, but the outlook's positive at the moment. Sales are going well. Um, the challenge the industry has, and it's not just been in our industry, but it's more widely, is uh, supply chain's got very long and very clogged uh, during COVID. So uh, in the past year, we've seen some destocking of supply chains. So that slowed exports down from New Zealand a bit. We did speak to a grower who said that the lower volumes for him, that's not such a bad thing because there's still a fair bit of wine left in tanks from last year's harvest. Thanks, Susan. That was Susan Murray in Hamilton. This is Country Life on RNZ National. 
101 FM. Kia ora. I'm Tanya Ashman and I'm part of the Paingarua Environment Centre and I'm here to talk about the seed project that we've got running here. Kia ora. My name's Jasmine Hunter and I'm also with the Whaingaroa Environment Centre. The seed bank has been around for as long as WIC has probably, which is uh, over 25 years. Uh, the Whaingaroa Environment Centre was started in 1997 by a group of uh, local residents. Our centre hub is in the Raglan Town Hall and inside that hub is an old walk-in vault. The temperature inside the vault is quite cool and it's the perfect environment for a seed bank. We're keen on, on saving seeds and distributing seeds because it's part of food sovereignty. So the idea is that people have control and access to growing their own food. How do you collect the seed? We have in Raglan a number of people who are amazing food growers, gardeners and seed savers. So we've tapped into those skills, um, especially through the time bank. So time bank is how you share skills and through a currency of your time. So you do something for someone else, for someone, and they give you a time credit. So it's just another way of having a really great community that's working with and for each other. I think a big factor is that it is free seeds and people, when they're investing their, their energy and time into um, you know, harvesting, donating, packaging, sorting... Um, it feels like, I don't know, there's much greater purpose, you know, like that all of this is going for free to the community. Mm. People can come in and choose the seeds that they want. They're packaged into small, accessible little envelopes with some information and people are coming along and they're uh, choosing their seeds and they will often interact with any staff member that's in the office. So... Yeah, picking up a bit of knowledge as well. Picking up a bit of knowledge. I've had teary moments actually because we've got this we've got this beautiful seed stand that was actually built by a, lo- a woman who lived in Raglan and ran the woodyard at Extreme Zero Waste. So she built the seed stand out of scrap wood and pallets, and it's on wheels, so we can wheel it in and out of the centre hub onto the front uh, town hall steps, and um, it's uh, got four different tiers. Uh, and at the top we've got these beautiful hand pottery bowls that have just got loose seeds with the name of the seeds and instructions and then underneath that it's a place where people can um, uh, uh, recycle their seedling punnets as well like the six cell ones and then next to it we've got a bag of free seed raising mix so people can actually um, either pick from the beautiful little origami packets that our uh, seedy sorter volunteers put together or they can fill up the punnets um, and so what I've seen is like we just get people visiting all the time and walking past I've seen teenage boys after school stopping at the seed bank filling up one of their punnets and then a little a grandma will come along and they'll have this beautiful interaction and connection and you know the grandma will be teaching the teenage boy about the seed and I'll be sitting in the background watching the whole thing unfold getting teary and emotional and and just like this is exactly why it exists it's not just for food security it's also for that personal connection between generations and yeah it's really lovely. Now you're also saving heritage seeds. Uh, We have a number of people who are saving a range of seeds and we have 
Belinda Goodwin, who is an amazing tomato grower, and she saves heritage oh, yeah. tomato seeds. So we've, we've got a whole variety. And if those seeds aren't saved, uh, is there a danger of losing some of these heritage um, plants? Well, some of them are starting to become really associated with raglan. So we're getting our own range and cultivars that really suit. We've also got taro and kumara, people who are saving and being um, caretakers of those, those cultivars as well. To be fair, there are Māori locally, they have their good collection of heritage um, potato and that as well. So um, I would say that there's probably some varieties of food that we don't know about even. The seed bank is not the only project that you have underway here in Raglan. There's, there's lots going on in this area. This certainly is. Food sovereignty is uh, a topic that we're all really passionate about here and alongside the seed project we have community garden, we've got a lot of education that's um, happening, uh, we're also doing land sharing and sharing of uh, crop growing so there's a whole group of people who are working together to grow uh, a large amount of um, pumpkins and kumara that they will share themselves. There's some gorilla fruit tree planting happening in the background as well. What's gorilla fruit tree planting? Well, that's where you just find this perfect spot and you go, that really needs a fruit tree that this community can use. On public land? On public land. And then you nominate a guardian to look after it. Mm. <laughs> How many have you got growing? We're just starting that project, but there's already several down Stewart Street. We do have a community orchard here as well, which um, is in a um, council-owned park. The community around there, they really love it, and there's families around there that years ago planted a fruit tree each, and we maintain the fruit trees by using them as opportunities to teach uh, fruit tree pruning. And of course, where are we right now? It's the Raglan Growers Market. So the whole aim of the Raglan Growers Market is to encourage and support small growers in Whaingaroa to um, grow crops that they can sell. So that um, increases the number of um, crops that are available, that fresh, fresh produce that's available to um, residents in Whaingaroa. But also we're spending quite a bit of time behind the scenes helping, each, helping all the stallholders and market gardeners support each other to, to grow more and bring more growers on board. Tanya Ashman and Jasmine Hunter of the Whaingaroa Environment Centre speaking to me in a corner of the Raglan Growers Market. Do you know how many tonnes of bananas enter the country each year? Jeff Mansell does, and he is on a mission to reduce that number by growing his own bananas and supplying them to local supermarkets. In spring last year, he took Leah Tebbit for a walk through his greenhouse, where he grows a variety of subtropical fruits. We're in Northland, we're in a, a small volcanic belt called uh, Mangantapiri and we're about uh, two hours, two and a half hours north of Auckland. And you're specialising in the subtropical plants, aren't you? Correct, yes. We bought the property and it had a few feijoa trees on it and we've expanded those feijoas and figs. We planted some figs um, as well and then about maybe eight years later um, we planted some some bananas and then we planted more and <laughs> eventually um, because I'm a trained nurseryman I decided that we 
we needed to have a greenhouse so that we could hold them during the winter, store them. All different types of subtropicals. Um, we're trying to introduce new ones from Australia and um, just seed that's permitted on the biosecurity index um, and trying to develop more types that will be adaptive to our, our climate. Yeah. Should we go have a look at them then? Let's do that. <laughs> yeah. We walk through a small orchard of citrus at the back of Jeff's house before I spot my first banana plant. Yes, well there is quite a bit going on here. We've got 4.7 hectares, so it's, it's, uh, it does tend to be quite large. Yeah, large so area to look after. was it all that 4.7 all in figs and feijos when you first arrived? Uh, no, so it, it actually had four paddocks. So yeah, three three of the blocks were in, in grass and were used for um, for some heifers that were on the property when we bought that bought it. And we've actually got probably the point seven is actually this bush area at the back of the bamboo which runs down to our neighbour's drive. Um, so so we've revegetated in there and tried to plant some native species that they're indigenous to this area or endemic to this area, creating more shelter really from the south. And you can see that the, the banana leaves tear very easily in the, um, in the wind and it's not actually the best for them to tear because all of the cells are interrupted that are carrying the, the cellulose into the, into the fruit and plumping it up if you like. Um, so it's kind of like their solar panel and their carbohydrate factory. Um, <laughs> but if it's torn it, it, you end up with smaller fruit. And you know they can't operate as as they should, right? Because it kind of lo it looks like hair almost, eh? Like you it's know, frazzled. Yeah, yeah, dry <laughs> hair. <laughs> yes. But it's sort of hanging down as a big yellow bag, which I'm guessing is wrapped around the the fruit of the plant. That's right. Yeah. What's the concept of of the bag? Uh, so the bag has protective features. So the silver side of the bag is to protect from the UV. You turn the protectant side towards the sun. Um, which is normally on the north side. This one seems to have been um, circumnavigated probably by Cyclone Gabriel. That The yellow is, they come in different colours and the, the notion with that is you can schedule your harvest depending on what colour you've got. So uh, we've only got two colours, yellow and blue, so pretty much we alternate each month. And then with a little bit of flag tape, that's what we know, you know, Green was January, pink was February, orange was March, and so on. Gotcha. So that, that's how you can schedule your, your harvest time. So it's normally about six months when the inflorescence comes out to when it's ready. But the other good thing about the bunch covers is, which is what we call the banana bags, um, the bunch covers protect them from mice, rats, possums, birds. True, they like going up and having a munch, do they? Yeah, they do. Oh. <laughs> yes, but the only real known pest of New in New Zealand, if you do cover your, your bananas, then um, you avoid most pests, but if we had pukekos closer to the house, they're, they're, they can devastate the banana, they tend to eat the stem, and then the, the, the plant dies eventually. Yeah. What is this big shed that's just to the right of us. Okay so that big green shed is our packing shed and we've got a Fijo grader machine in there and we um, we tend to be locked into a cycle of harvest from February until usually 
Normally it goes through till May, but this year it actually stopped at Anzac weekend, which is usually our, our most, you know, voluminous. We, we usually have half a ton, for instance, um, over Anzac weekend of Fijos. But yeah, so so we grade them in there, and then um, they're crated up, and then we can take them directly to the supermarket. So you're supplying to the local supermarkets. Yes. Yeah. How long have has that been in operation for? Um, with the Fijos, probably pretty much three three years after we got here, Craig, would it be? When we got here, the, the Fijo trees were very young, so we didn't hardly have any any surplus. took a few years to, before we had volume. And then with my NZGAP certification and getting to know the supermarket owners and staff, um, we managed to be able to supply direct. And it's just the feed jewels that you're sending to the supermarkets, or is there more? Anything really. Um, so we've got a certification that allows us a, a range of about 24 subtropicals. So the figs and the feed jewels are in there, bananas, papayas, pineapples, yeah, and, and the list goes on. <laughs> I forget the figure, I think it's something like 72,000 tonnes of bananas are chomped through annually. So there's quite a number um, of bananas imported into New Zealand. Yeah. So if we can, you know, substitute that with our own grown ones, um, we'll be... That's, better for that's the good. environment. Better for yeah. the environment, yeah. Come and have a look at the, um, the greenhouse part of the, the property. Um, Is it not the green shed, but the actual greenhouse? Uh, actual greenhouse, <laughs> yeah. So a plastic house. It's a 6.6 um, uh, metre high uh, structure, um, which is covered in a double skin of plastic, and the plastic's kept apart by a, um, a pump of uh, air circulation. And um, the good thing about that is it provides insulation to the outside temperature um, with the inside temperature. For so goodness sake, it's a big greenhouse. It is a big greenhouse. It's, <laughs> it's um, 600 metres squared. And then on the end of it, um, so the whole 100 metre length of this block, is that's the shade house at the end of it. So once we get the orders out later in spring, We'll put them in the, the shade house part for hardening them off, for conditioning them, and then uh, we take them down to Auckland or further afield. And lining the greenhouse on either side are two lines of, um, of more banana plants as well. That's right. So these were the first two rows of bananas. This used to be a fig block, believe right. it or not. <laughs> but uh, as Craig said, with the, um, the lower sunshine hours here and the warm, damp conditions, the varieties that we had in here weren't um, ideal and they didn't perform very well. So um, we put the, the bananas in... Those two rows, uh, that row first went in about three years ago and then um, as I got more plants I was able to put them in you know, and, and work our way across. Now that left a lot of space in the middle <laughs> and <laughs> as I said before the, um, the opportunity to hold over winter inside would mean that we could um, you know, produce more nursery plants. So they're self-sustaining the bananas, they just keep throwing up pups and you know so so that stem there with the fruit on it is what we call grandmother and the next stem that's going to come behind it um, will be the mother stem right. so once grandmother's you know once we've taken the, the inflorescence off the banana bunch off the plant um, that will die down and we cut tend to cut it down in vertical sections put it around the base of the banana and then it breaks down and 
the nutrient goes back into the soil to, to feed the next one coming through. Gosh, so it's, it's, it's a constant cycle. So we have three different types here. We have the ladyfinger type, which you can see are the taller ones. And we have the Cavendish type and the Honduran types. And then within that, those types, we have a, a number of varieties, right. um, which we, we bag up and, and produce as nursery plants. Come through into the greenhouse. Um, the temperature is quite different in there. You just imagine you're stepping into um, Australia or you're stepping through to, to Malaysia or somewhere in a more tropical climb. Gotcha. <laughs> So here we are in our production greenhouse. Um, so the first two years that, that we were in operation of this greenhouse, we, we put a raised central bed through the centre and we wanted to trial the varieties to see uh, which would grow under the 6.6 metre limiting factor of the roof and um, whether the fruit was actually going to be 25% bigger being completely covered in, in plastic and protected from the environment and with those leaves that aren't torn as you can see yeah um, they can produce the optimum size fruit in indoors right so and so to sort of describe it's got a sawdust floor yeah you've got lines and lines of all sorts of different plants even cacti as well yeah. it is quite warm in here but I can only imagine it's a lot warmer in summer it is very hot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So hot air rises, so we've got a top vent there. Um, the house is environmentally monitored for um, for temperature, humidity, and um, we've got a monitoring system on the irrigation. Um, and we also have misting in here, so the only thing that keeps the temperature down during very, very hot days um, is the misting system. So moving along here, there's some abu, which is from the upper Amazon regions. What's so. behind us right here? Okay, so these are tropical papaya and interplanted to utilise all this space that we've got left um, is pineapples, queen pineapple, and we've got a few of the uh, cayenne pineapple as well. And the pineapples that are here, they sort of look like yuccas or something that you've planted just just for show but it's because the fruit hasn't come up through for them yet that's that's right so this one here so it has had its fruit in the past but we're leaving it there to propagate more more suckers from for much so this one here has a fruit coming up through the middle oh it does too it's sort um, of red actually it's actually in the bromeliad family so it's it's not a cacti um but they do resemble cacti in some ways because of these prickly spines. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that that's the the bromeliad family, and the the central tube is where the the pineapple comes out. On this side, we've got uh, these are lacuma, which is often used for flavouring an ice cream in South America, where they're from, and another one uh, called Canisteau, which has butterscotch-flavoured fruit and. Yeah, again, it's used. That is scotch flavoured fruit. Yeah, well, yes. Delicious by the sounds. Yeah. <laughs> what other type of people coming to you? Is it families or, or those that have immigrated to, to New Zealand and, and looking for it? Or is it just sort of your average um, Joe Bloggs gardener that, that has a passion for bananas and, and wants them in their own backyard? It's, it's all of those, really. Um, we have had a, a few um, elderly groups through. Um, we've had some school children through. Um, we've had plenty of, um, you know, 
Asian people that, that like the kind of um, fruit that we're growing here and um, also um, all different sectors of, of society really. And all across through. New Zealand as well? Or? Yeah, I think it's, it's definitely location specific. Um, but in certain areas you can grow them well and there's all the, always the opportunity to grow undercover as we are under these covered structures and that's, I think it accounts for, is it 70 or I think it's more like 80 or 90% now of um, internal consumption in countries around the world like Turkey. Um, they grow their, their bananas undercover in Spain, they grow them undercover um, so you would think there that the climate would be ideal for growing them outside, but we've seen kilometres of greenhouses over there. And they grow a lot faster and the cycle time is quicker. Um, so I think the scope for where those areas where they can't grow outside, you can, you can always grow them inside. We reach the end of the greenhouse and head out past the shelter belts into paddocks of plants. Well, there's 200 plants outside yeah. and there's about three to 500 plants inside that greenhouse at the moment. Truly? Truly. So this was a uh, feed jar block. Um, so they're, they're planted at four metre spacings. Um, so what we had to do was adapt the irrigation lines to bring them into a, a, a 2.5, 2.7 metre spacing between the bananas is what we've got in these rows. We've kept the brute ball, sorry, of the feature that's in between the two bananas. Yeah, I can see. We've basically got one line of bananas in front of us and then the next are feijoas, aren't they? Absolutely. So those, those two rows there, um, if you like, were taken out of the greenhouse after Cyclone Gabriel we um, managed to get some woofers, some willing workers on organic farms and uh, we managed to plant another two rows of, well almost two rows, so it's really a, a row and a half there, it's a, it, you can't see the extent of it, the full extent and um, they have survived over winter, that's how adaptive they are, you know. It's quite a long field that we're in at the moment they're, they're quite isn't it? long rows yeah they're over 100 meter in, in length and each end we've got the headland so that we can turn our vehicles around and and take the harvested product up to the shed which is normally in crates and it's normally was feijoas in this block what motivates you to keep going with all the banana varieties i guess there's always more varieties around the corner you know finding out what the early introductions were that were brought into New Zealand when it was when it you know was able to be imported. It's now a prohibited import um, to bring any kind of germplasm into the country of bananas. We can only bring in the fruit, but not the plant material. So I think it's just the novelty of it. There's always there's always more out there, and seeing the different types that are being grown overseas that were brought into New Zealand at the time, like the Red Dacker and the Dwarf Jamaican. So it's trialling those as well. So there's always, you know, you're always learning. You're on this journey. Jeff Mansell of Kotari Subtropicals there, just 15 minutes outside of Whangare. Hi, I'm Sam Neill. I'm here at Two Paddocks, and you're listening to Country Life on RNZ, my favourite show. Last year, Waipara farmer Ian Knowles was crowned the Canterbury Regional Supreme winner at the Balance Farm Environment Awards. He also won a stack of other gongs at the awards for soil management, livestock agri-science, farming efficiency and climate recognition. 
Not bad for someone who came into farming later than most. When Cosmo Kentish Barnes turned up at his Glenmark Springs property, Ian was getting his dogs out of their kennels. What are your dogs called? Uh, Abby and Ritz. Abby, Abby. Abby's the only hunter I've got, so she's sort of the noise machine. And Ritz is my oldest heading dog. She's pretty clever. She does most of the cleaning up jobs. And she's mother or grandmother to most of the one, other ones I've got. How important are they in terms of helping out on the farm? Ah, oh, the vital. That's number one part of the team, really, is I really enjoy the stock work, and that's the bulk of sort of what I do most, most of the day. So, yes. yeah, without them, I'd be chasing sheep myself. So. <laughs> so where are we heading to now? So we just head up the farm. Uh, we had a wee bit of rain this morning, so we'll just go and check that everything's still where it should be. Hopefully the crops are picking up a bit of this rain and we'll keep growing through the summer. How much rain did you get? I've got about six mils, just enough to dampen the dust down. It certainly won't be enough to get the grass growing back to a green state, but it will help the crops and the newly sown pastures just keep alive and get through the summer in a good state. Tell me about the farm here. How long has your um, family owned it? So my mum and dad moved up here in the early 2000s, so we've been here just over 20 years. And in the meantime, we amalgamated two properties, so purchased the neighbouring property and added it onto the original home block. So that takes a wee bit of time to get the two logistics joined up in terms of access and tracks and water and electric fences. So there's a wee bit of development was required in the early stages, and then hopefully now we can sort of consolidate now that we've got a bigger property and hopefully start making some money. And it's a beautiful farm here, how would you describe it? It's a nice part of the world, it's sort of rolling hill country, there's quite a bit of cultivatable areas, about 300 hectares, but the bulk of it's medium to steep hill country, so it gives a nice balance and a nice sort of, I guess you'd call it work lifestyle balance within the business because every time you drive around the corner you get a slightly different view and as you get to the top of the hill you can see up to the Kaikoura Mountains and out to the Alps, over to Hamner and Culverton and then back to Christchurch, it's quite nice sitting up there and seeing all the lights of Christchurch in the evening time, so we get a 360 view if you get in the right place. Now we are winding our way up towards the top of the hill and already we've got uh, an amazing vista. Are those poplar poles that I can see? Yeah, so the last couple of years we've had a lot of support from ECAN and their SCAR team, which is the soil conservation team. Um, we've had some really dry seasons and some very wet seasons and because of that a lot of the at-risk areas of the farm that have got maybe soils that aren't that well formed or don't have a lot of vegetation have sort of slipped or created a bit of tunnel erosion and so we've put in about 35 hectares of poplar poles to try to help stabilise a lot of the steeper hill country areas where I'm probably never going to put a tractor or grow a crop so it's not having a major impact on the production of the farm yeah. but at the same time environmentally it's ticking a few boxes and hopefully heading us in the right direction in terms of securing the soil and protecting the waterways. We can see some dense pockets of native bush. Yeah so we climb a lot of elevation in quite a short time which means we get lots of little pockets of native gullies and guts that have never been really developed so they're just in their natural state. We've got a QE2 covenant out the back of the farm and a archaeological site as well from Naitahu um, protected area. So is that an iwi covenant? Yeah it's, so it's an archaeological site so there's some uh, rock drawings in there that you just like to maintain and protect them in the state that they're in.
Now we've come to one of the high points on the farm. Ian, describe what we can see around us. We're sort of in a bit of a microclimate here, so we're surrounded by reasonably big rocky hills and gullies, but they all run east-west, which means that in here the predominant northwest and southwest winds tend to go clean over top. So they're quite sheltered gullies here, really good soils down on the base of the gully because most of it's um, over time with wind and rain has washed off the rocky outcrops. So quite deep soils, I do quite a bit of cropping out here, it's really warm country in the winter for the stock and because of the good soil types and that sort of microclimate we can grow really good crops and I've actually got a fruit orchard just around the corner too because it just suits it so well. Mm, mm. We can see a mob of sheep grazing on one of the hills. Um, what are they feeding on? Yes, yeah, so I, I, previous life I worked for ag research. We used to study a lot of plant and animal genetics, so I was still really quite passionate about that. So mm. the two crops in front of us is fodder beet, which is the key for my, the wintering of all the stock. And what they're grazing now is called rafno, which is a cross between a radish and a kale, and it grows like a weed it's it's excellent um wee bit expensive to grow because it's new and novel but the stock really like it so at the moment the hoggets in their lambs so the ewes that are only a year old themselves in a uh, have got their own lambs running around behind them uh, mm. they're on that just to make sure they're all growing and then hopefully if we'll get a shower rain in the autumn time it'll grow away again and i'll be able to push that feed into the winter and make sure the young stock are fully catered for for the year ahead mm. now you mentioned that you used to work for ag research. What sort of area did you focus on? Yes, yeah, so I was a latecomer to farming practically, but I used to work in the agriculture industry, the Telford College or Ag Research or Beef and Lamb. So I had quite an exciting job off farm, but always wanted to go farming. But the real passionate part was when I was working with the ag systems team and ag research. They try to pick up all the new technologies and, and new ways of doing things mm. and actually see how that's going to work and practice on farm. So we had a lot of monitor farms and worked with a lot of high-level farmers that were really keen to try new technologies and they were almost the guinea pigs. So I was very lucky to be able to rub shoulders with some very clever farmers and steal a few ideas from them along my career at Ag Research and then hopefully try to put some of them into practice now. Do you do lots of on-farm trials here? Yeah, I'm a wee bit addicted to trial work. I didn't leave that hat behind when I finished at Ag Research. Uh, so most of the sheep genetics, for example, are all based out of uh, trial mobs that I've had here and find out what works and what doesn't and then multiply them up. Mm. And also with the plant genetics, if there's anything new and novel, I'm pretty keen to get a couple of hectares in to see what it looks like on farm. Um, try to sort of lead from the front and make my own mistakes and you've got no one else to blame then. What um, traits are you looking for in you know in, in sheep? Yeah, well, sheep are the real key to the business. They're about 80% of the income and they're about 80% of the uh, workload too. So what I'm hoping to do is try to keep their profitability up while reducing the amount of work. Just as I get more lazy and older, I try to <laughs> work smarter and not harder. Uh, so at the moment I'm chasing just sort of outright growth rate because wool hasn't been very profitable for many years and it's about time I let that just disappear out of the business I think. So trying to get a more meaty sheep, mm. um, shorter tails, I don't believe that we're really going to be able to justify cutting tails off in the future and I'd like to have genetics that are already at the stage where they don't get fly strike or dags and a nice mm. short little natural looking tail that doesn't need to be changed so that's the sort of direction I'm heading in the moment. Mm. And you also do dairy support? Yeah about 20 to 30 percent of the business is looking after cows for the dairy farmer so when they 
don't get in calf, they come up here for basically a sabbatical. Mm. So they leave the milking shed after one lactation. And if they haven't got in calf, they come up here for the year. Uh, the bulls come up, get them back in calf, and the following season those cows go back down to the dairy farm. So they're mm. up here for a full year. Um, they're a great tool in terms of um, cleaning up any surplus, poor quality pasture. Because they're already fully grown, I don't need to worry too much about giving them heaps of quality feed because they're already a mature animal. They just need to be on maintenance. So they add a really important dimension to the business. What is your biggest expenditure here? Uh, the biggest expenditure would be growing feed, and that's either through fertiliser or the regrassing cropping programme. That's mm. probably about half of the money is spent in the business. Have you done any trials with non-chemical fertilisers? Yes, I have, yep. For about four or five years, ran a fertiliser trial on two different sites on the property with all the conventional fertilisers, everything you could possibly find in a fertiliser company, and also comparing that with a few sort of more natural-type products like your seaweed-based fertilisers, mm. yeah. What were your findings? How did they compare? Yeah, it, it gets really complicated because the obviously the solid chemical-based fertilisers are all funded around science trial so you, you put on x amount of kilograms and you know within a pretty tight range what sort of outcome you're going to get and I found that really consistent every time I put it on tested the soil afterwards or measured the grass production it was almost you know spot on really mm. then when you get into the less researched ones the more natural type products all over the place you're seeing some results you weren't expecting and then often you weren't getting the results that you were hoping for Sometimes it would take maybe 18 months or two years to see a result and it was hard to know whether it was as a result of that special unknown mix that you put on or whether it was yeah. just some yeah. random act. So because it sort of lacks that scientific rigour, I've been pretty hesitant to spend much money on those natural type products just because it's so unreliable and when you've got a reasonable amount of debt and a lot of animals to feed, you do need a bit of consistency of outcome. What are your thoughts on regenerative farming practices? Yeah, so I've played around with a few regenerative mixes. Um, there's some really interesting things happening in there. I think particularly around the pest control part of it is where I get excited, is if we can maybe stop spraying for problem pests because there's wasps or butterflies that are coming into those crops which are chasing the nasty bugs away and helping the um, nicer bugs multiply up. That To me that seems like a really good outcome. Mm. The more species you put into a mix, the the harder it is to try to manage it. And so we're finding that most of those regen mixes are reverting back to what I'd normally put in anyway, which is your, your clovers and your chicories and plantains. That's about all that seems to be left after a couple of years. So they're expensive. They look really good for a couple of years, but I think we can probably simplify those mixes. In terms of profitability, how much money are you hoping to make this year from your farming operation? Yeah, so the ballpark budget for the long term is around about a million dollars gross income with about 50% working expenditure and then you take out of that your, um, you know, your interest to the bank and bank payments and living costs and all of that. So at the moment the meat market sort of tanked a wee bit so the lamb prices are well back on where mm. they've been the last couple of years so that all the costs are the same if not higher and yet their income's going to probably only be about 60 to 70 percent so the next couple of years is going to be tightening the belt um, there's not going to be much coming at the bottom 
and so just trying to consolidate and maybe cut a few corners in terms of cost just to get us through the next couple of years. Mm. Now you mentioned that you've planted an orchard here, can we go and have a look at that? Yeah we sure can, yep. What's your um, stocking ratio here? Yes, yeah, so run about 10 stock units on average per hectare, obviously quite different up on the native hill, doesn't grow a lot of feed and then these better quality paddocks is where the real engine room is in terms of growing young stock and, and finishing lambs. So typically you have about 4,000 breeding ewes and about 1,000 mated hoggets so they get in lamb hopefully in their first year of life and then run between two and 300 cows. Now normally people have their orchards near their house, but this orchard here is plonked in the middle of the farm. Yeah, it's because the yards are here and I spend a lot of time out here doing stock work, it sort of made sense to have the fruit trees here and we have got fruit orchards and gardens and things closer to the house but it's sort of nice to have something up the back of the farm it's a good excuse to come out here and often you get a bit hungry and you think oh you know an apple or something would just get me through to lunchtime <laughs> and so it's such a lovely little outlook here so protected and, and good water supply I thought oh it's a great place to have a wee orchard so there's all sorts of stuff here we start off just with one of everything and then the ones that worked out well have sort of multiplied up so we've got apricots and apples and limes and pears, plums, currants, fajoas, uh, nashi pears, so there's heaps of stuff there and then the ones that work well, so the fajoas are great, they've got such a long season and they keep so well, so mm. there's about four or five months of the year I can come out and have a fajoa for morning tea. Yeah, yeah. And Ian, tell me a bit more about the Māori rock drawings here on the farm. Yeah, so there's 26 uh, individual drawings that have been um, noted and reported on. There may be more, but some of the areas are not that easy to get to. So several decades ago, the Canterbury Archaeological Research Team came and did a survey of the area. So there's a few neighbouring properties as well as our property that has some archaeological significant sites which have got a covenant on them just to protect them to yeah. make sure they stay the way they are. So that's around um, excluding cattle from grazing because they tend to rub and bunt on things and they're big bullies and they might knock the uh, rocks around and also not to plant it in forestry or put buildings on it so as we can try to maintain them as best we can. Now as well as sheep and cows, you also have a collection of rare animals and birds here don't you? Yeah I'm very lucky that the farm's big enough that I can run a commercial unit and also there's enough little nooks and crannies where I can have peacocks and alpacas and ostriches and the farm already had some deer fencing on it which meant that I can contain a lot of animals that you probably wouldn't be able to have on a normal sheep farm and hopefully they stay where they are supposed to be behind the deer fence. I can see a peacock there running along the track. My gosh, these ostriches are, what, two metres tall? Yeah, plus a bit. And when they get angry, they seem to grow another foot taller as well. They're um, 
Yeah, the males are pretty imposing, but the hens are actually really kind and gentle. How many ostriches have you got at the moment? So there's about 10 adult breeding birds, and there's 15 of last year's chicks. And then a good friend of mine, Adam, down in Whiteborough, has the incubators and brooders, so he's got about 30 little tiny chicks down there for this breeding season. Which ones are the males? So the males are uh, black feathers with the pink beak and pink legs and then the females are just of a plain brown colour so the females are that colour because they sit on the eggs during the daytime so they need to be camouflaged in the in the dirt in the desert and the males sit on the eggs at night time so they need to be black so as you can't see them at night time in the dark. Mm. So how many um, eggs is this girl here sitting on? So they tend to, uh, they lay every second day over a couple of months, so each female tends to lay sort of between 30 and 50 eggs in a season. Gosh, a lot. Yeah, we've been collecting them up and putting them in an incubator to artificially raise the chicks this year. It's just a safer way of doing it because Mm. they tend to just find a bit of bare dirt and have a bit of a scratch and start laying eggs, but um, on the hill country the eggs tend to roll around a wee bit. And now that we've got enough eggs in the incubator we'll probably just see if they'll hatch them out naturally themselves so there's quite a few eggs in the nests on the paddocks at the moment. Mm. So if I walked into that paddock now would the male attack me? Would he be quite protective of his mate? Yeah so you definitely need a big stick if you're going in there with him but normally I just work them with the dogs and they're pretty good but as I said the males when they get aggressive this during the breeding season you just sort of best to give them a wide berth. What are these ostriches called? Uh, so when I only had a few ostriches, I used to give them pet names, but these are all just random ostriches. They've actually got tags and numbers, but um, there's two breeding groups, and then last year's chicks, which are as big as mum and dad already, down on a what was a regen paddock, so they've been pecking away at leafy turnips and sunflowers and clovers and all sorts of things, so they've been growing pretty well out there. Oh, I can see them down at the bottom of that paddock, mingling with the sheep. Yeah, everything just has to get along here. Um, the ostriches are the boss of everybody, but yeah, there's deer and goats and peacocks and alpacas and llamas and all just sprinkled out amongst the commercial sheep and beef farms, so you, you never quite know what you're going to see when you drive in a paddock. Now you can eat ostrich. Uh, what's the best meat on them? The, the only meat they have to speak of really is on, on the legs. They're just two giant drumsticks running around with a, um, with a furry coat, so there's no breast meat. One of those thighs could feed a family. They are huge. Yes, there's about 30 kilograms of meat on each bird as they're running around. So the the meat itself tastes pretty good. It's similar, I think it's a cross between sort of a venison and duck. And the eggs go really good if you want to make an omelette. But you just need to make sure you've got plenty of people because it's the equivalent of two dozen chook eggs. So uh, it's, it's a very big omelette. I've got some nice pictures of some of the ostriches and if you'd like to see them, go to the Country Life webpage. One day, do you think you might have a commercial herd here? Is that something you would be prepared to do if it was worth it? Yeah, so they go pretty good. It's quite similar to the deer industry in terms of being able to multiply them up and grow them out, like the the growth rates and the the weights and the end products are very similar, I think, to venison. Mm. So it certainly can be done. But it's the old chicken and egg thing, like you need sufficient numbers to be able to market the product. But if you don't have a market for the product, then there's no point in really multiplying them up. So at the moment we're a wee bit in in limbo as to whether we go bigger or just reduce it back to having a few pet ones running around. Mm. Well, they are 
pretty happy here. They've got uh, lots of paddocks to roam around in, and they're looking very healthy too. Yeah, the Whitebrook climate really suits them. It's typically pretty dry underfoot, nice warm days, so they can handle as much heat as you throw at them. They're used to being in the desert, so the only challenge we have is for the young birds, keeping them warm and dry when they're little until they're big enough to look after themselves, and, and after that they're pretty much bulletproof, really. Ian Knowles with some ostriches on his hill country farm in North Canterbury. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks for joining us. Bye now. Kaki te anō.